Well, we're going to get right into it, so I hope you have your Bibles and open them up, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, if you're not familiar with where that is in the Bible, just go right to the middle of the Bible, start going right almost all the way to the end, get to Hebrews, you got a couple more books to go, almost to the end of the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 2. And while you're turning there, let me, let me tell you that like a lot of you, I read a lot. There's a lot of really voracious readers in this congregation, I'm a big believer in that. And since reading shapes your thinking, listen, if you're a reader, then you've got a mind that is eager to be shaped. Those who don't want to have their minds shaped choose not to read. Now, that doesn't mean everybody has to be a reader. That doesn't mean that those who aren't readers don't have a mind that wants to be shaped. But reading is one of the ways that we do that. So let me tell you about a quote from John Calvin. Calvin wrote this, right? And this is hard-hitting, so I want you to hear this, and we're going to really jump into this sermon. Let us consider this settled, he writes, that no one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. Now that nailed me. Because I'm not sure I live that way. I really had to think through that, and so I want you to have to be confronted with that, because I think this is a really good statement to really do some work in our souls. Again, let us consider this settled. No one has made progress in the school of Christ who does not joyfully await the day of death and final resurrection. That does not mean that you want to die. That does not mean that you're depressed. That does not mean that you're suicidal. That doesn't mean you've got a life of despair. It means you know, Christian brother and sister, the day of your death is going to be sweet. It's going to be sweet because you're going to be with Jesus. If we have hoped in Christ, this is the Apostle Paul, in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So how do you get your mind, how do I get my mind more on eternity than on here? Let me, let me rephrase that, you know, ready? And this, is, this question now is going to really start setting the table for this sermon series. How do we get our mindset so rooted in what Christ has done for us that it completely changes the way that we live with whatever time we've got left on this earth? You know, there is so much that God has given us here on earth to enjoy. I love my family. I love my friends, both in the church and out of it. I love being a pastor usually. I love riding my bicycle. I love barbecues. I love camping. I love the outdoors. I love kayaking. Listen, I love a lot of different things, but as one of my favorite rock bands of the 80s, and I'm wondering how many people know who sang this, they sang a song called Hold On Loosely. How do you hold loosely to this earth? And grab hold of what's coming in eternity. Christian, listen, you and I are made for another world. Can you amen that? Man, some of you can't amen very well. 
You know what, I got to tell you, I'm going to teach you, one of these days, we're going to bust through the veil, we're going to get over the hump, we're going to be a church that can amen and clap after these songs. You know, you just got to commit, you just got to go all out on this, right, amen? amen? So that's the kind of church we need to be. So here's what we're going to be doing, we're going to be looking at this fact that we're made for another world, but it really is easy to lose sight of that world. It's really easy to be kind of in a fog and to quit thinking about eternity, or at least not thinking much about eternity, and thinking a lot more about the here and now. So Alien Invasion, the series that we're launching it's about remembering who we are as Christians and learning to live in a way that will bring the people of this world to glorify God. So here's what we're going to do. 1 Peter chapter 2. I'm going to look at this with you. We're going to look at it together. We're going to look at the identity that we have in Christ as a church. And we're going to look at the mindset that develops when you understand who you are and who we are in Christ. And then we're going to look at the power of the identity that Christ gives us that creates this mindset that produces a behavior or a way to live that can change people's lives. So what's our identity? Well, our identity is what you have when you can answer the question, who am I? Now that's basic, right? We're going to tease that out a little bit. Identity is the question that you ask to try to understand who you are. And the way you answer that question, who am I, the way you answer it starts with who or what is given, been given the prominent voice in your life. Now I'm going to explain that, so hang in there with me. Let's say you had a critical parent, a lot of us have. Let's say you've had a parent that didn't love you very well, didn't really communicate that very well. I don't remember one time ever, I'm sure he did, I just don't recall it, one time ever that my father told me that he loved me. Not until I got in my 20s and he was getting cancer and life kind of crashed down on him, he began to communicate it then. But let's say you've got a critical parent, then you're probably, listen, you're going to be prone to believe that you're never going to be good enough. So when people say something negative about you, it comes down with a ton of force. And when they say something really good about you, it seems to really not have much effect. You really want to be able to please people, but it's very difficult to do. Let's say you've got an influential teacher that told you one time that you really write well. And then all of a sudden, what comes into you is confidence and joy when you write. Or let's say you've got a favorite coach when you were growing up that expressed his or her amazement with your ability, and you really want to impress that coach, and you begin to play with confidence. You know what? If you're passed over by boys as a young girl, it's going to make it difficult to ever really believe that you're beautiful. And here comes some guy that says to you that you are really, really pretty, and it can have a potentially explosive impact in your life. You see, identity, who am I, is usually informed into your your life from the people around you. That's just fact growing up. In fact, they tell you, experts do, 
that your earliest conceptions, your earliest understanding of God and who you are forms between four and six years old, and, the, and it forms through your earthly father predominantly. So if you've got a father that is really loving, a father that holds you, a father that speaks life into you, listen, you're going to gain that identity that says, I've got a heavenly father that loves me, and I am safe in him. And I take the converse of that, and you've got a lot of problems growing up in America that all of a sudden come into focus. Here's the critical point. Are you ready? you got to listen. God's voice has to gain a prominent place in our hearts. Now watch, listen to this. Or identity will always be grounded in inferior opinions. Now that might sound psychobabblish to you, but let me say it again, and you've got to let that truth start to trickle in. God's voice must gain prominence in our hearts, or who am I, identity, will always be grounded in inferior opinions. Now let me prove it to you. Let me show you how this worked in David, a man after God's own heart. Listen to what he wrote. He wrote this in 2 Samuel 7. Then King David went in, or he said this, he went in and sat before the Lord. Now he's in prayer. Now he's about to speak to the Lord. And he said, who am I? Now he's looking for identity. Identity is what you get when you answer the question, who am I? Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house? What is my family that you have brought me thus far? You see, he rooted who he was in God's love, God's care for himself and his family. See, all of a sudden he begins to answer this identity question, who am I? Well, I'm somebody that God loves. Why? It has nothing to do with what I've done. It has everything to do with what God's done. See, Christian identity, friends, is entirely based on God's undeserved, unearned grace. And this is the secret. Now listen, I do a lot of counseling. This is what my degree was in. I love counseling. I love sitting with somebody that's struggling. And just bringing them to the Word of God, bringing the Word of God to them, loving them, showing grace and mercy, being patient with them, helping them get through these problems. Listen, I know what I'm talking about because this is what I do for a living. Identity has to be rooted in what God says you are. And this is the problem for almost every Christian I've ever met, including myself. There's other voices. There's other voices that compete with God's. And they've got an opinion of who you are too. They've got an opinion every time you walk through the checkout line of your grocery store. You're not pretty like that girl. Or you don't have a body like that guy. Or you don't have a car like that executive. Or you don't have a home like that family. Therefore, you must not yet have arrived. The secret to developing a robust, healthy Christian identity is learning to hear most prominently the language of grace, which is God's unmerited favor. Who are we is a question that Peter is about to answer. So let me now get into the text. All of that was introduction. How do you get a Christian identity? Let's look at it together. 
First Peter chapter 2, look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race. Hey, look at me for a second. I know that is so annoying when I do that. We're going to get into this, but hold on. You've got to see this. I just have to make sure you're, you're with this. You're with me on this. We don't talk like this. In fact, we're, ta- we're, we're taught to not have a chosen race. We're taught not to have a chosen favorite friend. We're taught to love everybody equally because if you don't, you're going to produce low self-esteem in other people. So we don't talk like this. Phrases like a royal priesthood. When's the last time somebody said, man, you look really good in your royal priesthood? Nobody talks like this. These are new words and they are explosively redemptive, but you've got to believe it by faith. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Four keys to Christian identity. Let's unpack them. You know what? These are Old Testament descriptions for Israel. As Pastor Matthew said, through the New Covenant, they are applied not only continually to Israel, but now to the church, because the church is believing Jew and believing Gentile brought into one body. So these are, a promise, these are promises to us as well. So here we go. You are a people holy to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 7, 6. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. I'm going to unpack these four. We're going to look at them briefly, but a little bit more closely. We're going to look at the identity that we have in Christ, the mindset that that produces, and the behavior that can come from it. But when I do this, when I bring it to you, when we reveal what these are, listen, this is your job. You know you have a job, right? Your job is to say, okay, that's what God says. I've got competing voices over here. I don't feel like this is true. It doesn't seem like this is true. I had a really bad week, so I don't think this is true. But if God says it's true, it's true. Amen? That was weak, but you got to bring it in. you got to bring it into your mind and by faith begin through the Spirit of God getting it down to belief. That's the way things work in life. You've got to believe, hey, if somebody tells you that that dishwasher at Home Depot, that salesperson tells you that's the best dishwasher we've got, well, then you buy it, that's an act of faith. You bring it home, you plug it in, you run a load of dishes through it, you see how clean they are, how much water you're saving, and now you begin to believe it. So listen, you bring these in by faith and you entrust your life to them. That's how you transform, that's how you're transformed by the word of God. We are chosen by God, number one. Now look at the text, I'm not making stuff up. Look at the text. It says, but you are a chosen race but what is significant about that okay so we're chosen by God what's that mean well let me give you at least three things that it means these are really really beautiful think of it just naturally simply this is low-hanging fruit this is not really diving deep into the text it's just is what it is the first is this being chosen by God means that God must love you If he's going to choose you, then he's going to love you. Or if he loves you, he's choosing you. They go together. You cannot 
tease those apart. It's not an arranged marriage in India done for political reasons where love has no part of it. Listen, this is a marriage between God and the elect that is built and based on love. It's not the last kid on the gym wall picked for a team simply because everybody's got to get to a team. That's not what it means to be chosen by God. It's not the kid, or this rather is, is, is the kid. It's the kid on the wall at the dance. Haven't you been that kid, or am I the only one here? That you're, you're on this wall, and you're just praying. I don't know how you pray at a dance. Somehow that works. You're just praying, Lord, please, this is a slow dance. Don't let me be on this wall. Just bring somebody. Preferably of the opposite sex, so bring somebody. And all of a sudden, the prettiest girl in the entire school comes over and picks you to dance with her. That's what it means that God has chosen you. The very best has chosen you. You were selected very intentionally. And you were selected and included into something. You were brought into, look at your text, God's treasured possession. What's it mean to be chosen by God? Well, number two, first, it means that he loves you, but number two, it means that you're secure. It wasn't by chance. God never reactively chooses. I mean, you might be going, my, my wife hates, hates taking me grocery shopping. How many ladies here can echo that? Because I'm like, whatever I'm hungry for at the moment is what I'm putting in the cart. And it's almost always fruit pies. I don't know, I have a thing for them. <laughs> so she doesn't like me going shopping with her because I'm indiscriminately choosing things. Well, God doesn't do that. He's always thoughtful. He's always determining to choose. It's not by chance. It's with thought. This is Ephesians 4, or chapter 1, verse 4. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Want me to tell you a little secret that I've learned through the through the hard knocks of marriage. If you're not married yet, I'm gonna save your marriage. Denise and I would go out to eat. It's always that really, really pathetic dance. Where do you wanna go, honey? I don't wanna disappoint her. I've chosen really bad restaurants and paid. And I don't mean paid monetarily, paid relationally. So I'm always like, where do you want to go? And she's like, you know, I think there's such a thing as called biblical headships, leadership. Try it, honey. So she throws it back on me and says, well, where do you want to go? And I said, well, I don't really know. By this point, the car started. We're out of the driveway. We're driving around endlessly. And I'm getting irritable. And she's like, I refuse to take this mantle of leadership. You lead us into choice. Give me some options. And I finally was like, you know what? Here's where we're going to go. And we have sometimes ended up in such an argument we went home that's not good choose where you're gonna go before you start the car I learned that the first 15 years of marriage it took me a while <laughs> so choose with thoughtful determination Christian listen God chose you long before you ever said yes to him now listen, if your theology can't support that, remake your theology because that's the scriptures. God chose you long before you said yes to him. And in fact, it was his gracious choosing of you that enabled you to say yes. 
So listen, God chose you before the foundation of the world, before he created anything. He already knew he was choosing you. He enabled you to say, yes, this is what it means to be chosen by God. Well, thirdly, let me give you one more thing, what it means. Being chosen by God means you've got a purpose in your life. You choose a kitchen appliance not to sit on the counter, but to be used for a specific function. Well, God's choices instill purpose, and Peter is about to show us what that purpose is. So let me get to the second crucial building block of Christian identity. Second one, letter B. We are the children of God with access to him. We are the children of God with access to him. Now, Christian, I want, I want you to hear this because this is so critical. There are other churches, usually not Protestant, that will teach a hierarchy. A hierarchy that there are some, the ones that are appointed and anointed to be bridge builders between God and the congregation. That's not the Bible, that's not evangelical Christianity, that's not what, what it means to be a priesthood of all believers. Listen, here's what it means. Every Christian here, you're a priest just like I'm a priest. Tim Ackley is not here with special access to God. And you're down here because maybe you didn't go to seminary or you don't, you're not called the pastor. So I've got Tim here and you down here. Listen, that's not the scripture. Here's Tim and here's you. We are right even at the foot of the cross. You have just as much access to God that I do. You've got the word of God working in you just as powerfully as it is in me. You've got the spirit of God that dwells in you just like the spirit of God dwells in me. We're all a priesthood. We minister before God, meaning this. Now listen, here's what it means. It means that you've got access to God any time and every time to bring your heart to Him in prayer. And you've got access, Christian brother and sister, every time one of your friends or family members is suffering, you can bring that person to God in prayer, and I'll watch, and you can bring the consolation and the mercies of God to that person. That's what it means to be a priest. It means to be a bridge builder, taking the hand of God and the hand of the suffering and holding them together. You're a priest, as am I. But we're a royal priesthood. Look at what it means. Listen, you've got to pound this into your mind. This is Christian identity formation. You're a royal priesthood. You know what that means? It means that you've been adopted into the family of God. You are a child of the king of kings. You are a royal priesthood. You're part of the royal priesthood. Meaning you've got full rights as the children of God. You've got access to Him. You are given the highest calling of bringing God's grace and mercy to others through teaching and praying. You know what it means to be part of the royal priesthood? It means you're a child of God, but listen, let's, let's take that just a little bit more. This is so wild. I don't understand this. I'm going to just be really frank with you. I mean, I got a little bit of it, but I think I'm missing a universe of truth. I just can't get to it yet. It means somehow, magnificently, gloriously, 
Jesus is our brother. I mean, that's, that's mind-blowing. That is amazing. Now, we're in the family of God. We're adopted into it. If you are in Christ, Jesus is now your brother. He's your elder brother, according to the epistles. Meaning that the very same love that God has for Jesus, this is what the Gospel of John promises, he's got for you. So God doesn't love Jesus here and love you, Christian, here. He loves you with the same love that he loves Jesus. I mean, how is that for forming your identity? I'm not some person that I've got to earn God's love. He's already given it to you. I don't need to try to get him to be kind to me. He's as kind to you as he is to Jesus. He loves his family. This is Christian identity. Now listen, there's some of you here, and I'm going to say a lot of you. I'm going to tell you because this, was, this has been me many times, and I've talked to a lot of you. A, number one, you're not getting this. So you've got to go back and chew on this on your own time. You've got to digest this, meditate on this. Or B, you're getting it, but it's not getting deeper than your information part of your brain. It's got to get down to your heart if it's going to redemptively free you. If you're going to have a Christian identity that creates a mindset that's explosively redemptive in your life, giving you the power to live in such a way as people see you and want to know God, then this identity has got to explode in your heart. It's got to transform. Look at the third building block of Christian identity. We're a, diff- we're a distinct people. The most basic meaning I mean, there's lots of nuances to this, so be careful with that. But the most basic meaning of the word holy has two little shades to it. It means to be set apart and different. Set apart and different. So if we're going to be a holy nation, then it means that we're going to be a people for God that have been set apart for him and are different than the other nations. It means to be distinct. He is our king. We are his people. We're a holy nation. We're governed by his word and we're led by his spirit. Now listen, let this trickle in. You're chosen by God. He's brought you into his family And he's given you a ministry and a purpose to serve him. How do you serve God? Well, you serve him with a sacrifice of praise. Nobody brought a little bleeding sheep to church tonight, ready to sacrifice it on the altar. Jesus did away with that. He is the Lamb of God once and for all, died for us. We don't bring sheep. We don't bring turtle doves. We bring praise. That's the sacrifice. But how else do you offer a sacrifice you lay on the altar and you say god you got my life romans chapter 12 i am all yours you can have me the way you want and we're a holy nation we're a distinct people we're to be different and we are his belonging to him number four and finally the christian identity building block we are his we belong to him look what it says the church is a people for god's own possession ephesians says purchased by his blood we belong to him now listen i want you to hear that god had to buy you 
You, now listen, this is so critical. Please, I'm going to tell you that America kills the word you. It totally distorts it. We hear it as an individual. The Bible means it as a community. Almost always. You is the church. You is the community of faith. And God bought you. God purchased you. Jesus is the purchase price. I did not come to be served, he says, Mark 10, 45. I came to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Listen, the word ransom was a monetary price you paid to buy a slave out of slavery or a loved one out of being captured by the enemy in war. You want that loved one back? You got to pay the ransom price. Jesus says, I want you back because I chose you before the foundation of the world to be in my priesthood, to be in my family, to be a royal nation, a holy nation rather. So I'm going to buy you. And the way that I'm going to buy you is going to purchase you with my blood. I'm going to die for you. Pay careful attention, Acts 20, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, that's the you, which he obtained with his own blood. All right, now listen, we're about to move the mindset. I got to make sure you got this. This is the identity of the church. Now watch, you can do this. Not only is it the identity of the church, it's the identity of every single believer that makes up the church. This is who you are. This is who I am. We're the community of believers. We're chosen by God. We're children of God. We're separated for God. We belong to God. And what is true of the corporate church is true of every believer. There's not one Christian over which God does not say, you are mine, now watch, and I am yours. Did you hear that? We usually get the first part. So I'm going to echo in that last part. There is not one believer over which God is not continually saying through the Spirit of God, you are mine and I am yours. Church, look what Peter says. Go on a little bit to verse 10. 1 Peter 2, verse 10, call, he's called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. That's not physical darkness. That's moral darkness. He's called you into a new kingdom, as Paul tells us in Colossians. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So this is it. We live in a different kingdom because we are chosen by God. We're part of his priesthood, royal priesthood. We're his children with access to him. We're a, we're a holy nation, a people for him, and we've been purchased by him. We belong to him. He's put us into his kingdom. Now, if you could begin to get that down in your heart, that is, by the way, the process of meditation aided by the Spirit of God. It will begin, Romans 12, 2, to transform your life. It will create, by the way, a new mindset. So let's look at that. What's the mindset? What's the self-esteem? The identity produces a self-esteem, the way you think, the way you feel about yourself. What is that? Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers. This is the NASB's version. 
I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. That's the biblical identity enabling us to see ourselves as aliens and strangers. Now what does that mean? Because we've got very narrow in America, very narrow perceptions of aliens either coming from space or Mexico. That's not what this is. So what's it mean? Aliens is a word in the Bible that literally means alongside the house. I'm going to explain that. Alongside the house. Strangers is just a synonym. It's just another angle on it. It doesn't refer to a stranger passing through. Now listen, you've got to correct that. It doesn't refer to a stranger passing through a land, but a foreigner who settles down, however briefly, next to and among those whose land it is. Did you hear that? It refers to somebody who is settling down in the midst of the natives. This is the Christian mindset. We are aliens in a home that is not our own, visitors traveling through, stopping briefly until we spend eternity with God. And when you begin to think like this, Christian brother and sister, and by the way, listen to me, most of you don't, and I don't, until suffering begins to shift our perspective. Those of you who suffer constantly and continually have an eye much more towards your next home than, the mo than most of us do. That's what suffering can do. But it's the Christian mindset, and when we think like this, we're willing all of a sudden, now listen, we're willing to forfeit pleasures that we could have for those that are eternal. Now I want to give you one example. I have often thought, and I'm sure some of you have as well, if I just stopped giving to the church and giving to missionaries, the things that we could do with that money in our family, the things that I could buy, the house that we could live in, the cars that we would be able to afford, the vacations that we could go on, that our friends are going on, that our friends drive, that our friends live in, if we just stopped giving to the church. But there is a mindset when you understand that you've been chosen by God and that you've been brought into a holy nation to be distinct from the world and that you live before the throne of God in a royal priesthood as one of his children who will receive everything that he wants you to get. When you begin to think that you understand that you really do belong to him, that he purchased you and now you live on the throne, you live, rather you live on the altar serving him, then all of a sudden it's really not that much work to give up what's really not yours to begin with. Do you see how Christian identity creates a mindset that now changes your behavior? 
When you begin to understand Hebrews 13, 14, for we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. It is a shift for the future of eternity. But our citizenship is in heaven, not here, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. When you begin to understand that, then all of a sudden you are buttressed, you are strengthened to fight the war against your soul. Look what Peter says fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. What are those fleshly lusts? Well, you don't, don't just slip right to porn. That's not where you want to go. That's partly where you want to go, but it's a lot bigger and wider than that. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander, those are all fleshly lusts. Or flip the page, chapter 4, verse 3, sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, abominable idolatries. We all got idolatries in our life. Listen, these are all fleshly lusts, and a Christian identity creates a mindset that says, I'm ready to go to war because it's robbing me of putting my hope in eternity. Every time, I'm speaking to me and I'm speaking to you, every single time that we run headlong into fulfilling the passions of our flesh, we have forgotten who we are and our mindset has not been aliens to strangers, but residents and citizens of earth. A Christian identity produces a mindset through which we see ourselves and the world but how does it influence the way that we live? Let's go to that last, our conduct. The quote that impacted my decision to preach this series is the one that you're going to see up on the screen. By one of my favorite preachers, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he wrote this, when the church has tried to become like the world, it has lost its effectiveness. So I began to look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and I looked at verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Listen, it seems obvious. Peter got this from Jesus, Matthew 5, in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Look what Peter says. Keep your behavior excellent look what he says among the gentiles alexander mclaren once wrote the world takes its notions of god most of all from the very people who say they belong to god's family they read us a great deal more than they read the bible they see us they only hear about jesus christ so what's it mean to keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles? Let's start with this. It means necessarily you're out living among the unbelievers. This isn't just non-Jews, Gentiles. This is a word Peter hijacks to refer to unbelievers. And we aren't to build colonies on earth and safely tuck us ourselves away from unbelievers. We're to be among them and we're to live in an excellent way. I love this word. You ready? It means beautifully good. It means beautifully good. 
See, the Roman Empire was very tolerant. That might surprise you. It was very tolerant. Liberal in its dealings with its many provinces. You see, they would take over a culture, they would take over a people group, and they would bring them by proxy into the Roman Empire. They would subsume them, they would assimilate them, and they would let them keep their religion. The Romans would let them keep their gods as long as they placed the Roman gods, Saturn, Jupiter, and all of the pantheon, as long as they placed the Roman gods along their religious gods. So they invited Christians to place Jesus in their pantheon alongside all of their gods. And the Christians, by the way, they would go town to town and Roman officials would come to you and if they brought you out of your house, they would give you a chance to swear fealty to the Caesar and swear fealty to the Roman gods by taking a pinch between your index finger and your, and your thumb of incense and put it into a candle at the base of one of the gods' statues. And you would say, Lord is Caesar or Caesar is Lord. And if you said that, you could live. If you did not say that, then like a man named Polycarp, you would be put to a stake surrounded by dried wood and you would be burned to death. And they killed many a Christian in this manner. But the Christians wouldn't do it. They willingly gave up their lives because they would not worship anyone but Jesus. So Rome brought their hatred against the church. They brought all kinds of slanderous charges. Here they were. Christians were cannibals because they believed they killed and ate a child at their love feasts. That's what they slanderously, falsely accused the early church of. Their gatherings to celebrate communion were mis construed to be sensual parties of incest. They called them love feasts or agape feasts. They were accused of damaging the trade of honest businessmen, rioting, turning slaves against their masters, hating the world. Ironically, they were accused of paganism because they wouldn't worship all the Roman gods. So what did the church do? They did what Plato said he said i will live in such a way that no one will believe what he says when and when asked if that person's gossip and slander bothered him no i will live in such a way that no one will believe what he says now listen to this the fact is the early church defeated the slanders of the unbelieving world in the early part of the third century celsus made the most famous and most systematic attack of all upon the christians in which he accused them of ignorance and foolishness and superstition listen but he never accused them of immorality Brother and sister, listen, whether you like it or not, you and I are advertisements for Christianity and for Christ. And when we live beautifully good, when we live in an excellent way, look at verse 12, they may, because of your good deeds, slander you as they observe them, they're going to glorify God in the day of visitation. Through the way we live, we could draw people to Christ so they will glorify Him and his return. Now listen, I'm almost done, but you got to hear this. 
Let me tell you what Peter did not say. You ready? Now listen. You're going to identify with this. He didn't say, church, go to Hackman's, buy all those testaments, you know, those little mints you pop in your mouth with little verses on them, and hand them to all your co-workers at Christmas time, and you're going to silence the slander of those Gentiles, and they're going to glorify God on the day of visitation. And ladies, he didn't say, put on your modest as hot as t-shirt or Christians, go to Music Fest and walk around with your Bloodweiser t-shirt. They all are out there. You can do it. That's not how he said you're going to win the world. Nope, not even. He didn't even tell you to go to the gym and break out the seeds of Samson energy bars. Or walk on the beach in those sandals where the left one leaves an imprint of Jesus and your right foot leaves loves you. And you walk your way down the beach bringing people to Christ. He didn't even tell you to go get a toaster that when you pop up your bread it's got a picture of a radiant Jesus burned in on the side of your toast. All of these are purchasable for the great subculture of Christianity. And he didn't even tell you to carpool with an unbeliever with a wash your sins away fragrance air freshener dangling from your rear view mirror. Listen, this is it. The way that you win people to the Lord is you live in an excellent way and you give them the gospel. You share Jesus with them in word and in deed. Now listen, you can share it in deed if you want, but if you don't bring the word, there's no power to bring dead hearts to faith. And you can share it in word, but if you don't have a life that is fragrant of Jesus, it's going to fall on dead ears. It's the life of being an alien and stranger in this world. How we talk how we work, how we rest, how we forgive, how we live, how we conduct our lives among those who do not believe. That's what alien invasion is all about. It's a mission of peace to the world. I'm going to ask you to try your very hardest to catch every one of these sermons. It's an eight-week service ser series, seven more weeks after this, and we're going to tackle all of those areas I just mentioned and more. How do we live in a beautifully good way as we live among the unbelievers? Amen.